And so I okay, think- but are there examples in the Bible where like there's that they talk about the followers of Jesus just raided a, you know, the Dairy Queen in Bethlehem? Like, did that happen? I don't remember reading that. No, I, I, I don't think that did either. <laughs> What is the 95-year-old Ryan Cedricus going to be doing other than roller skiing every day for a couple of hours? What we are seeing, this, this leveraging of double standards, uh, it is, it's important. It matters that we point out these double standards. It matters that we point out the hypocrisy. And it's not just merely what about us. We're not just saying... We ought to be able to do this because you do. I put more money in the community than you got in your budget. I put my future advance to the top. What we're rather saying is, I think there's something else behind your objection. Because your objection is something you don't actually care about. And I know that because for four years you didn't care about it. But now suddenly you. Can't stop, won't stop in my veins. That's why they can't stop, won't stop screaming the name. Orwellian world as you're sitting in like a teacher meeting and someone says something and it would just be okay I don't want to say that I I don't want to be anti-science but I also don't want to be I don't want to be anti-women but I also don't want to be anti-transgender how do I how can I do all these things I'll just shut up that is and that's a conclusion it is you nailed it that's what the statement is ain't no way they can stop me now because I'm on my way I can feel my ring coming is the blood of a champion Woman deep inside my veins He must ride to be running I'ma get what I can and more Even if my blood, my sweat, and my tears Don't mean nothing It's the heart of a champion All right, welcome back to Skiologians. And this is part two of the discussion I had with Colin Brooks. We've titled this Mobs, Masks, and, and God's Image. Because, you know, that title is just so critical for luring in most listeners in this one is sure to get people. You know, skiologians, the necessary preconditions for intelligibility is the Bible. The necessary preconditions for enjoyment is skiing. We hope you enjoyed this show. That's interesting. I got, I'll have to read that book, but I think it, it, it'll be one of those books too. Where I'll read and I'll go, every believer needs to read this. But do you ever read these books and kind of go, how do we get this information out to people? Because you see, you know, this, the large swaths of humanity consuming information that's just garbage and then you might read something like that it's like everyone needs to know that does that weigh on your heart it weighs on my heart no it it, it does and and i don't i don't have i don't have a solution to how to do that but i will say that, but the the one thing that does encourage me though and i hope i'm not going off on too much of a rabbit trail no that's I, fine but i think that's why i i love like what you're doing with your podcast and how i'm trying to have a podcast and a blog because Realistically speaking, so for example, let me take a step back, but I promise it's directly related to what you just asked. Mm-hmm. I, I used to, I used to really struggle with having a blog. I remember I read a, I read something John Piper wrote one time where John Piper basically suggested, I don't recommend anybody writes anything until I can't remember what he said, but I think he said at least you until you're at least fifty years old. And his his point was basically, I look back on my life. What did I know at twenty three? What did I know at 30 what did I know at 35 like and um and and that really kind of weighed on me like I started thinking like yeah I've kind of got a little niche with my wordpress blog but I'm still not doing that better than I'm I'm not I'm not doing Roman Catholic apologetics better than James White is or better than Turretin fans sure guys that I follow and 
I'm not as, you know, I've got a list of books right here that I'm trying to read this year. I've got Carl Truman right here. I've got Vern Poitras right here. I'm not giving you content better than that. So why would you, why would you listen to me? Just go read those guys, right? So I, I started thinking like, why, why should I even have this platform? But I think it goes back to exactly what you're saying, because I know realistically, I can't get the entire country to read Carl Truman's 415 page book. <laughs> I can't, I can't even convince my Wait a minute. Required education. Required education. Required education. Not Christendom, just calling. I can't, I can't do that, but here's what I can do. I have people that I care about that read my blog and listen to my podcast. And so I can start disseminating some of that information. And now it's getting into the heads of people. Carl Truman and Born Poitras are going to be in the heads of my friends who would never have picked up that book. So I think that, you know, utilizing all of these platforms is the, one of the best things we can do. Because, yeah, you're right. I'm not going to convince yeah. a million people to read this book. And be honest, as much as I love this book, if you're like giving me the opportunity, hey, give me one book, I'll read it this year. I probably have one I would rather have you read. So, you know, how much, am I even interested in forcing all my friends to read this? No. So, so I think the best thing people can do is what you're, what you're doing, podcasts and blogs. And that's just how we are. We're taking a group of people who normally wouldn't be exposed to this information and we're exposing it to them, you know? So, so you just, yeah. And then they go out and they go to the, into their workplace, into their school, into the gas station, hear something said, and it might be one line from your blog post that sticks in their mind that then they went and read another article or part of a chapter of one of those books. And now they're more able to respond. I think, I think that is kind of the encouragement I think of too. And, and you should know that, yeah, some of your content has been stuff that I'll look back on. Oh yeah. Like, and, and even if it's you just passing along something from one of those books, no, it's totally, totally valid. But yeah. And so that's good. I think, I think if that's weighing on our hearts as people who are like, okay, now I've got this truth. It's starting to well up inside of me and I can't, I, I feel agitated. Like that's, that's a literal feeling. I think I sometimes too, right. You, you start reading so much or listening to so much and you're kind of consumed with so much truth. You literally are over, over yeah. boiling over. And you're kind of like, how do I express this? And I, I do think, yeah, like on my heart, it's, I want, I want everyone to know. And maybe that is kind of the biblical realization of that truth where it's kind of talks about that, you know, and you're, you're overjoyed to the point where you are wanting to share. Now I'm kind of experiencing maybe what that means, you know, a little bit. Right. In some ways. Okay. Let's talk about the other one. <laughs> Gods of civil unrest and Jesus mobs. I have the, in the notes, I, I basically had like four bullets here. It was, what is the key point? So what did he say basically? Why and what you agree with? So, or, or why do you agree or disagree with it, with any parts of it? And um, how does this apply to us? Like what should the Christian response be? So maybe if you want to just summarize, like, here's what was said in this mega one in case I've, I've mentioned to some of my followers, Hey, you should read this, you know, but if you want to give them the, you're, you are very skilled Colin at taking something that is like hard to understand and making it presentable, both in your sermons and your teaching. So that's why we have you on. <laughs> I appreciate that. Now far has been said, hi, I'm, I'm not sure how well I'll, I'll, I'll do on this. I, I will say I'm, and I don't mean this as a criticism towards him. I'm not sure if this blog even necessarily had like one controlling thesis um, as I think he, he was just kind of responding to a lot, of, a handful of different things he was seeing and hearing. But I think, I, I think one of the main takeaways was kind of this idea of 
um, presuppositionally uh, sort of challenging this assumption, this presupposition that people have where um, I, should, I, I should feel responsible for what other people do with my words. And I, I, think, I don't think that was the main point of his entire blog. I think he transitioned to some further points, but I, at least the first half, he made some interesting connections between, you know, so like we just recently had the Capitol riots. And I think that was the, one of the main things in his mind as he was writing. Yep. And there's kind of this thing where it's like, a lot of those people are, were Christians. So how's the Christian church respond? Are you gonna denounce this? Are you going to, uh, are, you know, that, so it was almost like we should, we as Christians and we as conservatives should feel responsible for what happened at the Capitol because those were all conservatives and a lot of them were Christians. So is that not our fault? And I think he did a really interesting job at pointing out the way Jesus was never apologetic for the behavior of his mobs. Like he, he mentioned, Jesus had a, a, a wide following during his ministry and the complexity of those groups is fascinating, right? Because a lot of people were following Jesus and liking Jesus and listening to Jesus, but they weren't like sold out believers, disciples. And that's why a lot of them eventually walk away. They wanted something from him other than eternal life. But the point is, is he was a rock star in many ways. Like, yes, he was hated. That's why he was crucified and killed. But there was a large contingency of people who loved him and not in a saving repentance, faith, forgiveness, salvation kind of a way, but just as the miracle and the, yeah. the, 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 the guy who's going to overthrow Rome or whatever it might be. And I think he just made some interesting connections to where um, Jesus had a large contingency of people thinking he was a rock star fawning over him, some for good reasons, some for bad. But never once did Jesus feel the need to, to really address this or apologize on behalf of this. Um, and so I think okay, but are there examples in the Bible where like there's that they talk about the followers of Jesus just raided a, you know, the Dairy Queen in Bethlehem? Like, did that happen? I don't remember reading that. No, I, I, I don't think that did either. I'm, I'm trying to think of, of some of the stuff that, that he brought out. Um, but I, I guess I could. <laughs> no, I, I don't think he was making that specific of an analogy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just just generally speaking, Jesus had a he had a very disconnected relationship to his mobs and we live in a culture that wants to have, that wants to force us into having a very, a very personal. Those are your people. They're all Christians. They all believe in Sola Scriptura. They it's like, no, 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 sorry. No. Which I think that's like, we have to be careful too of when we're making this analogy that people are like, well, so are you saying Donald Trump is like Christ and these are his followers? And you know, it's like, that's not at all what's being said either. But yeah, I, that's a good point. Okay, keep going. Sorry. No, I, I think I think that was that was basically. I mean, that was kind of my my main takeaway from um, the first part of the first half of the blog, um, and then he kind of transitioned into that into this issue of double standards, um, and I think that's huge. I think that's huge in politics right now. And what I'm seeing is it's interesting. the The key phrase I'm seeing among people today is "what aboutism," right? Yep. So. They, they're calling it whataboutism. And when we, when we dare point out like, okay, well, you're really upset of, 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 with all of us conservatives and all of us Christians about A, but your side has been doing A for four years. And then the response is, well, that's whataboutism. Like I'm sick of whataboutism in politics. And so it's kind of like this way of like, okay, 
what we did four years ago doesn't matter. The issue now is Trump and he's doing bad things. And these things are objectively bad. And it doesn't matter if other people do bad things, like he did bad things. And, but I, I think he did a good job at talking about how, uh, he didn't phrase it this way. This is how I took it. About how this is not what aboutism. Um, what we are seeing, this, this leveraging of double standards, uh, it is, it's important, it matters that we point out these double standards. It, point, we, it, it, it matters that we point out the hypocrisy and it's not just merely what about us. And we're not just saying we ought to be able to do this because you did. But what we're rather saying is, I think there's something else behind your objection here because your objection is something you don't actually care about. And I know that because for four years you didn't care about it, but now suddenly right. you... So I think he did a good job at, at least in my mind, distinguishing um, the, these, these wild double standards that we're seeing right now in politics matter. And it matters that we see them, that we identify them, and that we talk about them. And that it's not just merely, uh, you know, the two quote fallacy. Well, I can do it because you do it. Like, that's, that's not what's going on here. There's, there's a sinister, unspoken motive behind the unrest right now. And what they're claiming they're upset about is not what they're really upset about. And we know that because they weren't upset about it when their side did it. And so that's it helps to the real issue. That's, I think, the way it has to be framed, too, because the whataboutism claim, the annoying part is, is that even if you're a Doug Wilson or someone who's like going to try and point out that double standard, I feel like sometimes like because they know the other side knows that it's not the real issue they get very emotional and so then they use that kind of whataboutism claim of to sort of like prevent the conversation from really moving forward that's right. the part that yeah. i see is being frustrating yeah. it's like you know oh that's just whataboutism now there's like our fishing line is all tangled up and it's like oh you just ru no like we know and so i think being able to clearly point out what you just said is like we know that the real issue is not what you're saying is the issue and you don't actually care about that because here's why um, right. but that is hard to do and yeah i think that that pointing out the double standard i've kind of whenever i see even conservatives or guys like doug wilson or james white kind of like saying well look at this double standard i sort of go i i don't see any possibility for for saying that of getting through to someone on the other side Sure. Like, it just seems to me like they're not going to take that. They're not going to go, oh, you're right. We have a double standard. That's wrong. Like, I, I don't know how we break them, break through that. That That is frustrating. So to me, I'm kind of like, is that really the Christian response to to come in and be like, this is a double standard? Like, to me, that almost seems like an argument you're not, isn't going to go anywhere. But how can you enlighten me to to just no right i don't think you're right there maybe it is or here's why <laughs> oh yeah I, I yeah i'm kind of in the same predicament i think that we're all in a new this is a relative i mean it's not new to the lord it's not even new to satan i mean they've been interacting in the world for a long time so yeah. but just us like this is a kind of unrest and a kind of political turmoil that's new to us and so i think that a lot of us are kind of struggling with how do we uh, how do we articulate and verbalize and I, I I think conversations surrounding our political climate are difficult for Christians right now because um, we're not you know it's not like the Pelagian controversy we're not looking back and saying oh the church has kind of been here done this like we've had this conversation before this before it's in a certain sense it feels like very new territory and it feels like a very new system of thought and it's very hard I think to break through to people right now and 
express, like you said, like we're not just, this isn't, we're not just, I'm not just saying when I point to, for example, how Black Lives Matter and Antifa burned our country down for nine months and people on the other side of my political aisle seem to not just look the other way, but to actually support it. And then all of a sudden there's one day where the Capitol is destroyed and people are literally calling it the next 9-11. Like right. as a Christian, I, I want to be able to vocalize like there's something fishy going on here. Now I'm not saying you guys burn things down so we get to burn things down too. Right. Like, that's kind of what about is and that's double standard. Or if, I'm not just saying we shouldn't care about the Capitol riot because of this. That's also, but what I'm saying is where is this disconnect? Like, why are you okay with what happened in most of our major cities this year, but you act like the Capitol riot is the worst thing that has ever happened on American soil. And so it's, but it is, diff, like you said, I, I, I don't think even I do a great job at when I'm dealing with, you know, a non-Christian or someone on, you know, who sees the country different than me right now. And I tried to get to that. It, to me, to them, it just almost always sounds like I'm just saying, what about is it? Yeah. Like, well, uh, you guys, you guys did this to Trump, so we can do it to you. And you did this, uh, but that's yeah. not what I'm saying. I'm saying, I'm, I'm genuinely confused. <laughs> like, what is going on where well, I can but, burn the system down in this name, but I can't burn the system down in this name? Yeah. And there, well, the other thing is, is again, there's a lot of, if using my fishing line analogy, there's a lot more snags in there, such as, you know, you can get hung up on, well, the Black Lives Matter protests are, you don't understand like the racial injustice. You don't understand that history, kind of where that's coming from, you know, so it's complex. And right. I think so when we're, when we have to be very careful and I, I haven't really addressed this to anyone either, but I think if I were, I would go, first of all, like, I want to recognize that there is a background, that there's a difference between these two riots. Like, and I think that should be brought out in the four too, is that they're not the same and, and, and in that the destruction of, of property is the same, you know? And so it's kind of pointing out like where maybe somehow a little give and take of like, I'm going to recognize that I get what your argument is in terms of these being different. And you are seeing this right on the Capitol as being, really a, a riot against democracy, but then being able, I think, to expose that perhaps the support of Black Lives Matter being an organization that is anti-democracy would be kind of the card I would perhaps play, but I'm not really smart enough to do that. But I think that would be the double standard I would try to expose. And, and yeah, I mean, I can't believe how many people that phrase has been so hijacked that we as Christians are someone who actually have again we're gonna go back presuppositional like we have a reason to say that black lives do matter and and no one else really does right like we have that foundation that we are all equal and equally created and, and united in christ and so it's interesting and sad how like i wouldn't be able to say that phrase in church really in without really being careful like i am saying and i believe in the phrase the words black the black lives matter but i i firmly am not in support of the organization black lives matter i can't believe how many people though like haven't thought about that once or twice you know you see signs up everywhere and and it's like that is kind of frightening and just weird and sort of stupid how it's such a claim because it has so much meaning behind it i, I don't know no, that's 100% right. And it doesn't even have to be an organization. So I know this wasn't technically the article you wanted to discuss, but I, I just have to relate it to, I already kind of name dropped it once already. Uh, George Orwell has an essay called Politics in the English Language. And he 
he essentially argues how political speech destroys language and destroys thought in the process because our language and our thought are connected. Sure. And, and so when you destroy the language, you destroy the thought. And now a stupid people who don't express themselves well is very easy to govern. And so it, that's where you get into some of the political sides of it. But anyway, he does a masterful job at talk about how basically how he would define political language, language that's geared for a political agenda is language that's intentionally um, created to conceal rather than reveal. Like he said, the, the, the art of true strong writing, like if something is written well, or if it's spoken well, then the, the way it's written well is if it's very concise and it's very good at specifically conveying a thought. Political language wants to do the exact opposite. It wants to be ambiguous and vague, and uh, and that's and there's a lot of manipulation that is accomplished when you do that. And so it's not just Black Lives Matter. Like this is not some new thing. Political language has done this for for all of the existence of politics. You you load phrases and words up with with meanings that either are not true to the words, right. or just that no one really knows what the meaning is. And this yeah. is why P.K. Chesterton said that all all battles are essentially battles of the dictionary. Like that's what we're all fighting over. We're all fighting over the meaning of words. And oh, yeah. so what I want to say as a Christian is black lives matter. What that is a political, politically loaded phrase. And it has nothing to do with black or lives or matter. It has nothing to do with the etymology or the denotations. It's a political phrase. It's a political tool. It's just like, how do, how do people describe abortion? They describe it as women's rights or women or, or, or health care. Yeah. But, I mean, is, is abortion like, is that really belong under that category? I mean, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Let's talk about it. But they just throw that out there is this is health care. It's not it, health care or women's rights for the <laughs> aborted woman. <laughs> but, but that's the language. It's, it's, yeah. and so there, this is what political language does is it tends to manipulate through vague, ambiguous sloganeering. And so that's why like, I have no qualms about saying I will never use the word Black Lives Matter in, in a positive light. And that's because I, I know that's not what it means. And again, it's not yeah. what aboutism. If someone asks me, what's your proof of that? Well, how about the fact that Black Lives Matter is pro-abortion and abortion specifically targets Black lives? So, I mean, you could, that, that, that's not what aboutism. That's a, that is a direct contradiction. Just, that just one of many proofs that Black Lives Matter has nothing to do with Black people. And this is why Black Lives Matter does not care about conservative Black voices. Candace Owens is like the, the, the spawn of Satan to a Black right. Lives Matter person. I'm not saying I agree with everything Candace Owens you know, promotes, but the point is, is they don't really care about her life. They don't right. care about unborn. So Orwell's point is, you know, your same point, like this, this, this is a political, ambiguous sloganeering it's literally it's propaganda that's what it is it's propaganda oh i'm glad you got to that word because i was going to say the one statement that rings from this article was when he quoted the guy who said propaganda was not meant to persuade but to humiliate yeah so can you explain that because and i heard that on dividing line james white kind of explained it and then i was trying to double pull up a hill and i kind of lost like you know critical oxygen in my brain <laughs> couldn't yeah. really synthesize it permanently in my head but i think i got the idea more of what you were saying too of you hum well yeah explain that phrase why is propaganda not meant to persuade it's meant to humiliate 
because I think when we all grew up, we all learned propaganda was meant to persuade someone of something that's not true. Yeah, I, and I'll be honest, that was a new quote to me. I, I'm not sure I have figured out. I'll be honest, when I first heard it, I actually didn't really agree with it. I thought it was like, yeah, that sounds cool. That sounds intellectual, but you know, is that really true? I'm not sure. But the more and more I thought about it, I, I actually think there's a lot of truth to it. So like I said, I, I probably need to develop my own thoughts on it more, but where I'm at with that quote in the general point is no, number one, the first part is exactly what Orwell was talking about. The purpose of propaganda is not to persuade. And that, that's exactly what Orwell was talking about, that political language is intentionally ambiguous. Like a political speech is always filled with jargon and big terminology and tons of run-on words. And it's never intended to be very, very clear. It's political language in general is not intended to be clear and concise. It's not trying to persuade you. That's, I, I've already been convinced of that through Orwell. So, Which isn't that kind of that connected to that point of saying like you're hu it's humiliating so that they can control you easier, more easily, right? Like, isn't that that's the ultimate the, the logic the, behind oh, that? Yeah, that is the ultimate logic, and I think that's it. And, and I think we do experience that, like especially with, for My example, color. racism. You know, we see that word right now is really weaponized in our culture, and uh, everything is racist. If, if you disagree with this, you are racist. 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 And I think that's a great example of that quote kind of in action because now I'm not so interested in being right or being factual or true. I just don't want to be called a racist. Exactly. I'm, I'm terrified. Of to say something against the. Right. And so it is like that, that point is of humiliation. Like they make me, you know, so if, if you, if you believe in Christian, this, you're anti-science. That's embarrassing. Now I, Man, now I feel like I'm this back yeah. who's never read a book in his life, you know? And, and so would you write a novel, Doug Wilson should write a novel of a Christian teacher in the public school system. And the novel would just be writing his inner thoughts on dialogues like this, right? Living in an Orwellian world as you're sitting in like a teacher meeting and someone says something and it would just be, okay, I don't want to say that I, I don't want to be anti-science, but I also don't want to be... I don't want to be anti-women, but I also don't want to be anti-transgender. How do I, how can I do all these things? I'll just shut up. That is, and that's a conclusion. It is. You nailed it. That's what the statement is. Yeah. If, if I say this, no one, no one will care that it's factually true or compelling. They'll just care that it's transphobic. Yeah. And that, so yeah, that's exactly what it is. Propaganda shames you, humiliates you mocks you, ridicules you. Another way I'm seeing this happen is, uh, is through like the, the idea of conspiracy theories is yeah. now, now that's kind of like the new shame. If, if you believe anything, yeah. you're a conspiracy, you're a conspiracy theorist. You know? And so yeah. now, that's the next thing I'm afraid of saying, like, you know, there, there are tons of people who, who are like feeling, you know, suspicious about the election per se. Yeah. They know if they even voice suspicion, Oh, conspiracy theorists what do you think the earth is flat too <laughs> yeah you're probably QAnon, right you're probably flat. yeah but so i like i said at first i didn't think that quote was true i thought it just sounded good but the more i pondered it that that is and i would say beyond propaganda i would i would always prefer to use orwell's term just political speech in general the difference between political speech and just normal rhetoric 
is political speech is vague, ambiguous, and it seeks to manipulate and embarrass you so that what you said, you can be controlled. I think that's exactly what it is. So is the encouragement for the Christian to think, this is kind of getting to my like bonus questions on the after here, but in my head, I kind of am wondering, what should I be hoping for? Should I hope that that keeps going down that road of ridiculousness to the point where everyone is sitting in that teacher meeting going, this is ridiculous, right? Yeah. Or is the hope kind of, and then, they, and then they sort of, you know, have run the Romans one to the end of the conclusion and, and everything's blown up. And now I don't know what happens after that. <laughs> or, or is the hope that like, well, it's the end times. Are we headed towards, you know, Mark of the Beast now? And I had this written in my notes kind of because someone had asked me, oh, right, you know, you kind of been on theology and stuff. So, so are we headed towards Mark of the Beast? And are we <laughs> headed towards 666 and all these things? And, and like, I don't understand I don't have a firm eschatological stance. I don't, I, I just haven't, haven't gotten there yet, really, like, like, to be honest. So, so I don't, you know, all the heroes of, of the faith that, that I read about these other things, I don't, I haven't read their logic and understood their argument to the extent where if a random person walks up on the street, I can say much more than, you know, basically my only thing I could say in response to that is, well, actually, I think there's a pretty convincing argument that the beast of Revelation is Nero, you know, and then then they're all thrown off because all of a sudden I veered away from Tim LaHaye and left behind and that doctrine. So what would your response be if someone walked up to you and said that and they were a Christian, like and you knew they were a Christian and a, and a good Christian and they kind of were like, wow, yeah, this is crazy. I loved your podcast and you talked about how crazy, you know, the world just headed down the tubes. And so are we headed towards Mark of the Beast? How, what would your response be to that even? Yeah, that's a good question. So kind of depending on the scenario, I would probably, if I had time, I would try to kind of outline my view of Revelation and explain to them why I think the mark of the beast happened 2000 years ago. Um, but if I'm looking for a, if I'm looking for a more brief uh, response, I would, I would try to be a little bit more clever. And I think I would say something along the lines of this. Um, it's interesting right now, what Christians are afraid of is the world devolving into a place it's already been. And that's why I'm not that afraid, right? So it's like, let's just, let's just take worst case scenario. Let's just take worst case scenario. Like, yeah. Yeah, everything good. The United States is on a downhill trajectory. And in our immediate future, Christianity is going to be illegal. And, and, and uh, the government is going to silence you if you're a Christian. They're going to kill you. They're going to throw you in prison. They're going to torture you if you're a Christian. Like, let's say that's what Joe Biden wants to do. And it's going to happen four years from now. Right. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like basically every country that existed in the first century. Yeah. That, that sounds like that sounds like the Roman Empire in the first century, because that's what was happening. Like, so basically, we're afraid of America turning into first century Rome. But what's the good news of that? First century Rome fell. Yeah. It didn't work. <laughs> it it didn't work. And you have church fathers like Tertullian talking about how the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And Tertullian's point was all Rome did was accelerate our growth. All By killing us, they empowered us. They, they grew us. So I guess what, I'm, what I would want to say is I'm not that afraid of America turning into the, the political empire that helped accelerate the growth of Christianity. You know, it's like, we all, it's like, it's like we have this mindset where if, if America gets to this point, it's the end of the world. 
Yeah. But Christians have lived in countries that weren't at that point, and it wasn't the end of the world. Like, we're okay, you know? So in other words, I guess I would just say um, the Christian church, when you look at it as a whole, the whole body of Christ, uh, yeah, my government doesn't like Christianity and it's persecuting us. That's nothing new to the bride of Christ. That's nothing new to, to God. So, I, so no, I, I guess I don't see... That, 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 that's just kind of a more, more less, less biblical, more, you know, colloquial way, if you will, of saying how what, what we are going through is not as new as we think it is. It's not as foreign or bizarre as we think it is. So I have no reason to think it's some special event. Like, yeah. oh man, like, um, you, you mean to tell me America <clears throat> is turning wicked? Like, that must mean Christ this is it. Like, this is it. I, I don't think Christ thinks that much of America, where our downfall <laughs> equals the end of human history. Like, no, I think. Well, and so maybe that's the way of like, even for me as someone who doesn't understand eschatology too much, kind of coming alongside that person, going, "Look, um, the external thing. Or, both you and I, we can't know for sure the exact order of how these things are all going to happen until Christ returns, right? And we could, we could, we should be able to both agree on that, right? Me and the other Christian, like, but what? But we, we should pump the brakes because let's have a." a mindset of church history here and point out to them that there has been far worse or, you know, very similar things of our, that, that would equate externally to the, to what we would say as our worst nightmare. And I think most, most Christians wouldn't know that. So it, it would be a point that first thing to point out is like, look, it's actually been really, really, you know, awful before. And that only accelerated the church's growth. And so if the, our worst nightmares are realized here, we shouldn't be, holding up in our homes going at some point, the rapture is going to happen. Right. You know, but we should be comforted by the fact that Christ church will reign and it might be 4,000 years from now. We might just be experiencing another first century. Right. I mean, that's kind of what I'm hearing you say a little bit is I think people sometimes get hung up on the specifics and then, so now they're looking for all these clues and they're trying to piece them together. And then if you aren't someone who's if you're a little more left behind, <laughs> eschatology doctrine you know you know what i'm talking about then then you are kind of like really trying to observe those things and and that's the part where i guess for me i wish i knew more because i think engaging with christians especially now i think there are a lot of people that are going to slide into that which could have a negative effect on evangelism and just being strong uh, so i don't know if you've probably know more but I, maybe you should explain to us even like how does the current what's going on fit into your eschatology? Because I know some people, like Doug Wilson, I think has tried to kind of articulate that a little too, or maybe Apologia Studios does, but but sometimes they, yeah. What, what would you say about that, if you yeah, could? That's a great question. Yeah, and, and, and let me also kind of rephrase where I was coming from. I did kind of start getting into some post-millennial talk about how the church is going to be better off because of it. And But even, even if we lay that aside, I think I, I guess one of the key things. Well, no, but even even Kanye, I think I think even that point isn't even doesn't have to be post millennial because you could just say, yes. like you know, clear, the the Christian Christianity is being clarified by the darkness of the secular worldview. So I think that's just something you could just argue as an opinion, and I would argue that that like we the Christian church will be strengthened. It might decrease in numbers because you're going to see people a lot of people who said they were Christians. Oh, yeah, I guess their true colors are being shown now. So I even wouldn't have taken that as like an eschatological stance, more so just. That makes logical sense, you know? Yeah. But yeah, yeah go on. So that's a great clarification. You're absolutely right. I agree with you. Um, 
but I, I would still, I, I always say what I was getting at is, but I think what I want to emphasize though, is that just primarily, I just want to emphasize that our circumstances are not as unique and special as we think they are. Like, cause I, I think that's, that's the connection people are making in their minds. Like they see something's going to happen. I mean, the world is eventually going to end, right? That's the one eschatological thing we all agree on. Like Christ is eventually going to come back and, yep. and reign. And so, um, so, the, so this assumption is that the generation that happens in has to be like really unique, like nothing else, like this is, this is like nothing else we've ever seen. Therefore Christ must be coming back again. And so the only point I want to say is that um, regardless of my eschatological position, I want to know why you think what's happening is so unique. Like, why is this so special? Because it's really, it's not like America is not that special. I mean, our persecution is not as bad as it's, it's not even close to as bad as it's been, not just in the past, but where, where it is even today, it's not as bad as it is in China. It's not as bad as it is in, in, in some parts of Northern Africa. It's not as bad as it is in North Korea. And so I guess I would just want to say, I, I think there is a little ignorance and selfishness in this. My, my country is changing. Therefore, this must be some world-ending cataclysmic event. This must be the special generation of Christ's return. And I guess I would just want Christians to take a back, step back and say, is what's happening now really that unique? Is it really that spectacular and special that we should associate it with? You know, because if, if your position is just Christ is going to come when things get really bad. Well, they were really bad in the first century. Yeah, I'll play, I'll play devil's advocate here, though, too. What about the person who's kind of like maybe done more homework, though, and they're like, well, what about what's happening in Israel? What about these natural phenomenons? What about all these other things? And they're kind of trying to piece those evidences together. And they maybe agree with you. They're like, yeah, the persecution element, but it's coming, you know, or something like that, you sure. know? Yeah, and, and I agree. The, the, more, the more specific and educated on the scriptures a person is, then the more I would want to have longer conversation, right? Exegetical conversations. But what I want to begin with just kind of the general approach of, man, things are really bad now. And in Revelation, it looks like they get really bad before the coming of Christ. Therefore, it must be now. And I would just want to say, whoa, well, let's pump the brakes a little bit because things were really bad in the first century and Christ didn't return then. Yeah. Plenty of things in the first century to connect the same dots that you're connecting. Uh, there are plenty of things happening during World War II when literally everyone thought the world was going to end and everyone thought Germany was going to win. I think there were a lot of things people could have connected the dots to in the book of revelation back in the forties. Right. And so, so you're right. If, if someone has like specific Bible verses that they're connecting, then we need to do exegesis. But just the, the initial outburst of fear, I would temper with it's, we're really not going through something that unique or that special to immediately assume Oh, this must be the end times. Why? Because America is is on its on the road, to, <laughs> you know, to, to communism. Well, yeah, that's that's not a big a deal. Like most of the world has been communist, and you know, like, yeah. we're okay. But yeah, so I just my my general position um, on eschatology. Uh, clearly, eschatology. I, I like to call it. I didn't make this phrase up. I think in most people's life, eschatology is kind of the caboose of their theological train. And it is for me. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, I don't have a lot of specifics 
I don't have as many hills to die on in terms of eschatology that I do in terms of soteriology or the doctrine of scripture or theology proper, the doctrine of God, right? Um, you know, whether God is, is omnipresent and uh, simple is far more important to me than premillennialism, postmillennialism. Yeah. So just admittedly, it's, it's, it's an area of, of theology I don't have as many answers to or even as many passions to. Um, but I, I will say, though, just to outline my general position, my general position is sometimes known as partial preterism, though I don't like that phrase. I wish it was just called partial. I wish it was just called preterism. And some people do call it just preterism. And that's a Latin word for past or completed, something like that. And essentially what it means is most of the texts that modern American readers go to to start connecting the dots between what's happening today and what Jesus said would happen uh, at the end of time, I think a closer reading of those texts suggests that uh, Jesus was not talking about us. He was talking about a different culture, a different country, a different society, and that those things have already happened. Right. Uh, so, so that's kind of where the term preterism comes from, is we're essentially saying these end times texts are past. They've already happened. So they're not really true end times texts. Uh, they were speaking of a different event. And we today assume they're, they're speaking about the end of the space-time continuum. But we actually, in the partial preterist view, say, no, they weren't talking about the end of space-time continuum. They were talking about the end of something smaller, and it's already happened. It's, it's in the past. And that's mostly like the first chunk of Revelation, right? Yeah, kind of. So, um, but not quite. So in a sense, yes. In the sense where Revelation talks about the end of the space-time continuum at the end of the book. Right. So we don't. We definitely don't want to say everything in Revelation is dealing with um, first century. First century issues. Yeah. So, but I, 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 it, I think it's a little bit more complicated than just saying this half is about the first century yeah. and half is about the end times. I, I think that John is a little bit more complex and he intertwines those things a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so it's not so much like I can tell you which chapter begins end times talk and which chapter does. Right, right. But yeah, generally speaking, you are right. I think that the beginning of the book, there is much more of an emphasis on what's about to happen to first century Israel. And the yep. end of the book does have more of a, but don't worry, because at the end of time, Satan's going to get thrown into hell. Hades right. will be thrown into hell. Christ is going to conquer. We're going to live with him. And that's clearly not today. So probably not, that's not even probably totally unlike the prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ's return, where like a phrase would mean something directly pertinent to Israel, but also would be like have a dual meaning of prophesying or relating to Christ almost. Like I can think of some verses I feel like in Isaiah and Jeremiah, right? When, so there would have been a specific prophecy, but also something bigger that they might not have understood. That's a little bit how I think about Revelation, I guess, too, is like I, I, I don't throw around those terms and even like preterism i've heard you know some people like well you can't even be you know i think there's aren't there radical preterists or something that even well, so i don't that, know like yeah that's why i mentioned <laughs> so typically the, the phrase is partial preterists and full preterists yeah i wish the phrase was preterists and hyper preterists that's what i wish it was but yeah so there are full preterists who do take that extra step and they say there is literally nothing in this bible that has anything to do with my future so they, these are people who would deny that Christ is coming again. They would say Christ is not coming again. Um, so 
now I don't, I'll be honest. I, I don't know enough of them. I've never interacted with them. So I can't, yeah. okay. how they do understand these texts, but there is, there are people who would say, yeah, at literally everything has been fulfilled. If you find any passage in the Bible that sounds like an end times text, it is always 100% about first century Israel. And yeah, wow. we don't, I don't take it that far. So that's why it's been nicknamed partial preterism. Uh, gotcha. To most people, yeah. Well, that, that's helpful. I think that's a huge topic. So I feel like you kind of addressed sort of the heart of my question there a little bit too, which is good. I want, I want, there was one last thing I kind of wanted to ask you about. Um, and it was, I heard this, I think it was either James White or Doug Wilson somewhere talking about masks. We know how much Doug Wilson hates masks. Well, James White does too. Oh my gosh. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. Uh, but, but I think, Oh, this is such an interesting topic. There's so many layers that we could unpeel here. But the one that I want to touch on because it's very unique is the fact that a mask is covering up the face and that being a key physical manifestation of the image of God in man. So here we go. Conspiracy theorists. Let's get our conspiracy theorists together now. <laughs> right? Like, is that is that going too far or is that idea, you know, is this James, James White, one thing I, I feel like is, I don't know if it's annoying or good or bad, but you know, he'll say something that like, just wait, right. This is going to happen. And, and he's been right a lot. He's not, not in a prophesying sense. Right. But just kind of going, he knows history. He knows theology. He understands it. So he's able to make these predictions. And so I, I am, is this one of those things where, where we're watching us, the complete total masking is sort of this subtle plot, almost a by Satan, right. It only could be him to further eliminate this idea that we're made the image of God and how that kind of relates to this culture of death. I don't know how, how much you're in on that, but like even going back to like the 1920s um, with abortion and kind of how that kind of all came about and many of those policies to now where we see the culture of death, the world economic form, this great reset of COVID was just a mechanism by which we can harness this control to have big government basically eliminate, you know, make the population smaller. I don't know if you've kind of, you know, that would be the ultimate conspiracy theory. If someone's listening to this, we are, it's okay. We're, we're, we are normal people here. But, but anyway, like, yeah. So how that connects, like, cause I was kind of connecting those two dots, like, whoa, okay. We mask up, everyone masses, mass up. Eventually we are dulled to the idea that we are special, creating the image of God. And that's a way that, that we, that, that happens. And it, it sort of plays into that, that plan to, basically kill the human race, you know? And, and that's just weird. I don't think, I think that it's hard for people to imagine that, wait, you're telling me the great, the great resets about killing our own population. And we're like, yes. Yeah. Cause that doesn't make sense. Why would we kill ourselves? So where do you, do you see that? Is that nuts? Is that something that's biblically valid? I don't know. Yeah, no, that's great. So um, sometimes with, with some of these thoughts, especially as I've, as I've seen expressed by Doug Wilson, I, I kind of think of them, you know, if, uh, if you were to take a, uh, you know, a PhD mathematician and he were to sit me down in a room with a huge whiteboard and he were to prove on, on the board E equals MC squared, right? He were to walk me through that equation and prove it to me and explain it to me. I would, I, I would be convinced, right? I would be like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I see it. Like, like there it is. Like, yeah, your, your conclusion, you're totally right. This is good. And then all of a sudden he erases it and someone new walks in the room and I go, Hey, e equals MC squared. Did you know that? And they say, prove it. I would not be competent or ready. Yeah. For so it's like, I, I think sometimes that's how I feel with Doug Wilson. Like he will, 
thinks <laughs> so well and he'll come to these conclusions so well that I, I read it, I see it, and I'm convinced by it. And then I share his ideas and then other people start poking holes in it. And I don't know how to answer because they're, mm-hmm. they're really not my ideas. <laughs> you know, I haven't, mm-hmm. I, so that's kind of where I am with the whole face. I, I am, I, I do believe that this is, that's, that this is kind of a kind of satanic uh, attack on the image of God and that it, it will have, if continued, repercussions, it's going to have really bad repercussions. Now, I don't think I'm prepared to like lead with that in a conversation with another <laughs> Like, I don't think I've thought through it or be able to prove it enough where I think to some degree, I do kind of just keep it in my own head and let Doug Wilson play with it. Um, no, I disagree. This is great, right? When you're in the grocery store and someone's like, put a mask on, I'm going to go, cover the image of God? Are you out of your mind? Because <laughs> why would they even respond to that? <laughs> but, I, I, but like I said, some of the things I do agree with though, it, you know, like, so this is, I was afraid to bring this analogy up because it's kind of, it's kind of crude, but if, if you don't mind, I, I think it's still very telling. I remember one time in a college classroom, I cannot for the life of me remember what the class was and what the heck the point of this was. I just remember the, st- the statistics, but we had a professor who asked us a question, asked the men a question. Obviously this was sometime in the past because now there's no such thing as men and women, right? But he asked the men a question. What do you think when, when a man finds a woman attractive, what's the first thing about her that his eyes go to? When you see a, a, an attractive gal, what's the first thing that you're attracted to? Mm-hmm. And basically what it became was an issue of two parts of the body. And, and the guys in the classroom were basically debating, you know, what's, what's, what do men like more, a woman's front side or her backside? That's, yeah. And everyone was blown away because nobody got the right answer. Like everyone guessed it was either her front side or her backside. And guess what the right answer was? Face. Her face. But it, it never even crossed our minds to think of that. And I think that just shows how we don't even process it. We don't, we don't consciously think about how important a person's face is. But we, okay. all, intuitive, we all intuitively know it. I, if, if I were to ask you, if I were to say, Ryan, this is, this is really, again, a very bizarre hypothetical. But I would say, Ryan, you know, I'm going to burn you and you're going to get severe first degree burn scars and it's inevitable, but I'm going to let you pick the part of your body that gets burned. I guarantee your face is the last thing you want scarred. It's, it's the last thing you want disfigured. I'm okay having burn marks on my chest. I can come down and really carry my chest. Sure. There, so I do think there is something about the human face that is vitally important in, in, in a spiritual intrinsic way. And I remember the first time I finally felt my own personal conviction not to wear my mask any longer. I went into a grocery store and I was the only one unmasked. And I remember just looking around at all of these people and they were like robots. And it, yeah. was, a very, it was a very, it wasn't, Eerie. I didn't get angry. I didn't get into politics. Yeah. I pitied these people. Like yep. I truly felt like their humanity was stripped from them. And I know if you say that to someone who's really pro mask, they're going to roll their eyes and it's not going to mean much. Right, right. So that's why I said, I, I probably wouldn't lead with that in a conversation, but I really felt it for the first time. Like this, this is not okay. This is not the same thing as making Jews wear the star of David. This is not the same thing as forcing all Christians to wear a red hat. Like when we are covering up someone's face, I, like I said, I, I don't, I can't 
walk you through, here's what this is going to lead to. And, and, and here's why, but I just, there, I have this spiritual testimony that says, this is really bad. Okay. I'm going to say that connecting this, then what we talk about image of God, people, <clears throat> all men are convicted of what you're saying. I think just like in the same way, like the Romans one of, we all know by evidence of creation. I think even Bonson in one of the lectures we listened to, he talked about the internal conviction. Basically, I think his point was essentially what you're saying, that we have this innate awareness that we are unique. We're not like other animals. And and it's because we're made in the image of God. Like we actually are aware of that. And I think you're right in saying that the mask has revealed to even the unbeliever how the face is sort of that way that we all are reminded just like creation reminds us continually that god is god our face reminds us continually that we are made in the image of god and so if if what we're saying is true then i think the culture of death connection is completely relevant because if you and what you just said too like you're in the grocery store you see everyone masked up there is kind of this like whoa, this is eerie. We are like robotic. We have been stripped of humanity. I think the same thing could be said as a teacher. I'll get like an email and they'll say, hey, look at this picture of the classroom. You know, kids are back in session and, and it's so good to have the kids back. And then you'll see this picture and, and everyone's masked up. I honestly don't think there's any teacher that looks in that and isn't at all like just a little moved, like something's not right here, right? Like this is weird. This isn't normal. There's not that bright light of spirit. It doesn't even look like there are real human interaction. I mean, I've been in different schools too. I started the year subbing at Lake County. It was really weird as like to go back those first days and walk, watching kids walk around in mass. This is totally aside from the inconvenience factor, which honestly is very real of terms of kids can't breathe, teachers can't breathe, they're tugging at their masks. It's all the things where it's like, we could sit here all day and debate, that's almost maybe more of a risk, blah, blah, blah. It was like the immediate realization that, yeah, humanity was stripped in that area. It was just void of humanity. And so if, if it continues long enough, yeah, what is now we have just eliminated the reminder that we are made in the image of God. Well, what's the next thing that would happen? Murder. What what's wrong with that? Like, because I think that's the convicting thing that we all, the Ben Shapiro, we can all kind of agree that, that murder's bad, right? Well, just wait. Murder, we all agree it's bad, I think, because we innately recognize that man is different than an animal. As soon as it's just butchering, like butchering a cattle. And I know that seems ridiculous, but I think that would be the James White, just wait 10 months from now kind of a claim, you know, that we would be headed that way. Exactly. And, and here's the proof of that. Why, why has, well, not just the proof, I think you're already proved it, but additional support, like, like we already are, and I, I know you agree with this, but we already are butchering people like animals, but it's, it's, a yeah, yeah. but it's a particular group of people. And who is, who are the people that we're butchering like animals? It's the, the ones we can convince ourselves that aren't humans, right? Exactly. It's the people that look the least like humans. Yeah. Like, because obviously I'm, I am pro-life from conception to death. So I, 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 fir I firmly believe that at the moment of conception, that is a human being. But I recognize it's in a stage of development that doesn't really look like a human being. Like, right. I recognize that for, for a few months, that just kind of, you know, to be crude, it's just like this blob or some little yeah. creature, some little alien in there. And so because it doesn't bear humanity in the way we're accustomed to, that's why it's so easy for us to discard it. It's so easy for us yeah. to be like, 
Yeah, you killed a person, but I mean, was is is that little zygote in there really a person? I mean, it's right, a, right. It's got, tail. it's got a tail, and it doesn't even have arms. It looks more like a shrimp. So, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. People to kill, and and I think I can't prove this, but I think that goes back. You look at Darwinism and some of the early eugenicist claims that black people were not fully evolved yet. They were still yeah. Ape. So again, it's very easy to enslave Africans. If you're convinced oh, they, they kind of look more like, you know, they're, they're darker skinned than us, kind of like monkeys. And they have this, right. I mean, this is what the eugenicists were saying. They've got the bigger nose and the bigger lips. And so it was easy yeah. to say they're, they're more like monkeys than humans. Right. Now, I don't think that whatsoever, just, just to be crystal clear. Right. <laughs> yes. I don't think African-Americans look like monkeys. Right. But that was kind of the logic was they're not quite, they're not really fully human yet. You know? Right. And, and some of that was based on appearance. Some of that argument was based on appearance. And so I think that, yeah, so what you're saying is not just this radical future prediction. I think we've seen it in human history. You know, black people aren't fully human yet. And zygotes, they're not fully human yet. So I don't feel as bad when we kill and enslave them. And so the logic of that is, is the more and more we cover up our humanity, what you're saying, the more and more we try to ignore our humanity, the physical manifestation of it, the more easy it's going to be to actually ignore it. And well, and, and a person like they're not human. I think like connecting even what we talked about this the, it's the start. If someone's like, okay, but how are people actually going to start killing other people? It's like, really? Think about it. Like all you got to do is this this group of people. They're they're speaking the hate speech. Like they're 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 threatening your safety. It's a bit, it's for the better good that we we kill everyone who lives in uh, Roswell, New Mexico, because that radical preacher has has made them a threat, you know. Like, and and I think like that connection, if it if it happens, it'll be very swift because, um, and that's like the farthest end. But I think already the most frightening to me in my immediate life, like looking ahead to the next five ten years, is I have already seen on Twitter threads and um articles a couple written where it's like we need to ban homeschooling and watch it for those christians because you don't want another january 6th to happen right exactly yes it's like you know like it's like whoa 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 that is and people are all for it you know it's just like well yeah like that and they're you know not not even just well i mean some of the main areas yeah kids deserve an education like, like, is it, they're not getting it from their mom, right? They're, they can't get it in a homeschool situation, but that alone has so many issues, that statement, but more so their argument is like, and, and even worse, they're getting indoctrinated with this, like this, this belief system that is going to lead to violence. Well, we need to eradicate that. Well, like that, I think would be the next step, but I, I just kind of, you're crossing my fingers that again, all this, what we're seeing and all these connections we're making, you almost kind of want to be wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Or buy land in the middle of nowhere and go there. I don't even like, that's my backup plan. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, just for worldly hope, uh, we have even more hope than this, you know, spiritually and gospel oriented. But I, I do also think it's very easy, especially since the media is largely controlled by one ideology. I do think it's easier to think we're further down the road than we are. And that's not to say, um, like we shouldn't be on guard, we shouldn't be fighting against this, we shouldn't be. Yeah. But it is to say that it's it's not like it's it's just you and me who don't want this to happen. Like th- there are a lot of people fighting on our side. Yeah. And so you know, in in other words, I do think. I mean, I think the trajectory of America is not good. 
I mean, I think where we're headed is not good. I think we've seen those steps in our own lifetime being taken. So again, we're definitely losing. I, I'm, I'm okay saying that right now we're losing America. It, it is going down, but at the same time, I mean, there are a lot of people who see, who see things the way we see it and are fighting against it. So I guess what I'm saying is, is, is we shouldn't speak too much as if this, and we haven't been, but just to give hope, right. we should not speak of this as if this is inevitable. Yeah. This, and this is the next five years, even exactly this, this, there's yeah. no stopping it. It's like, well, that's not true. We're losing, but there's still a fight, right? There's, there's still a contingency yeah. of Christians and non-Christians who are all fighting against this right now. So it's definitely not inevitable, but the scary thing is that it's possible. Well, and I think like as much as that encouragement sounds, okay, yeah, I can, I can feel that. Then I go, all right, 1980 was only 41 years ago. And think about how different the world was then, right? And now go in 41 years, I'll be 70. Like I want to live until I'm 90. So like, I got to think about like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Maybe it won't happen in three, three or five or 10 years, but my kid is going to be 20 in 20 years. So like, what about him? You know? And then, yeah, when, when I'm like my grandma's age, you know, and she's 95 now, like what is the 95 year old Ryan Cedric is going to be doing other than roller skiing every day for a couple of hours. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I always tell Christy that it's like, I really hope I am like one of those guys who lives in Colorado. I'll be like 98 years old. I'll go on some bike ride or I'll, a better yet. I'll be like roller skiing on like some mountain pass, you know, and just coming down hard and fast and doing a normal step turn I've done every day. And then I just can't quite do it. And I just fly off the edge. Like I tried, ah, that's how I want to go. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of like that. Uh, uh, you, you've heard of Alex Honnold, that mountain climb. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, he, he, he's, he's so comfortable. He basically says like, I know that's how I'm going to die. I mean, cause I'm never going to stop and eventually I'm not going to be able to do it. And he just seems so comfortable. Like, this is what I love. So yeah. What, what better way is there to go out? You know? <laughs> yeah. He's, he speaks okay. almost too thought. It's like, dude, that could happen to you when you're like 33 though. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> like that could happen tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. Oh man. 